So last week when we had that big dump of snow, about 15 centimeters of snow, I was out that that morning and I saw our neighbor snow blowing her driveway and I thought, oh, I'm gonna ask if we can borrow her snow blower because Dwayne, my husband, unfortunately has um, been wrestling with a pinched nerve in his back and has been in a lot of pain lately and um, I hate shoveling the driveway. My hat is off to all you true Canadian women who can do it. Uh, I run out of stamina really quickly and I just hate it. So um, I thought, well, I'll ask Leanne, our neighbor, if we could borrow her uh, snowblower. So she said, sure, yeah, I'll bring it over when I'm done. So I went back over to the house and I was you know, busy doing my thing and I kept looking out the window waiting for Leanne to come over and all of a sudden I realized her husband, Barry, was snowblowing our driveway for us and I was mortified. I did not intend for them to do our driveway for us. I really was gonna just use the snowblower and do it myself. So I threw on my hat and my coat and I ran out there and I said, oh Barry, you know, thank you so much. You didn't have to do this. I really was gonna do it. And he just beamed from ear to ear and said, no problem, I'm happy to do it for you. Uh, well, if you're like me, as grateful as I was, um, and as blessed as I was for that generous act of compassion and grace and kindness on their part, I also hate it because it's really hard for me to just accept a free gift of compassion and grace without feeling like I should and I need to reciprocate. I need to do something nice in return. And then I feel like, well, what if I don't do enough to show you how grateful I am? And then the balance is uneven and I still owe you something. And it's just really, it ends up being really complicated for me. Um, so this series uh, during Lent, we are taking these next 40 days to look at parables of grace in the life of Jesus. So the parables Jesus has taught and what we can learn about grace um, through these, all the ways that God bestows grace on us, all the ways that we don't deserve it, all the ways we need to stop trying to earn it and just receive grace. Today we're studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in this parable, we're going to look at it um, to see not only what can we learn about grace, but what can we learn about our own human hearts and the heart of God. And I'm going to tell you right now, here's the main thing I want you to take away from the parable today. Here's the thing I take away from it. I'm going to give it to you straight up. Giving and receiving compassion means having to be humble. Giving and receiving compassion means having to be humble. We have to put down our pride and offer compassion and grace without um, conditions. And we also need to be put down our pride and be willing to ask for help and admit that we need help so that we can accept compassion and grace from Jesus as he reflects God to us. Now, Dwayne and I first heard this idea that letting other people serve you, show you grace, takes humility from a beloved professor in our undergraduate years. His name was Dr. Jim Lowe, and Dr. Lowe was a theology professor. And uh, this was the first time in my 20s when I'd heard this idea that being served actually takes humility. We have to put our pride down. Why is that? Well, so often Dr. Lowe would say, we love to help other people. We love to offer grace and compassion because it makes us feel good 
good. And often it can feed into this sense that we have something that they don't, that we're in a place of power. Um, but we also have to be willing to put down our pride and let other people serve us. It's actually a powerless place to be in when we're letting other people have compassion on us. And that can be hard because in our heart of hearts, if we're not careful, we want to serve from a place of justifying ourselves. And this is the very language we hear and read at the beginning of this parable of the Good Samaritan. So what I want, to, what I want us to know and look at for this parable in its context, well, Luke tells us that the expert in the law uh, approaches Jesus and he's not asking Jesus a question in good faith. Luke tells us he's trying to test Jesus. And so he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I want us just to put ourselves back into these early Jerusalem, put our place, put ourselves in the place of Jesus's disciples and imagine the scene unfolding us because, around us, because if we can understand it in its original context, we'll be more able to translate it to our context and see what nuggets of truth we can learn from it. So Jesus and his disciples are out traveling um, and they're approached by this expert of the law. And so Jesus doesn't take the bait. He knows he's being tested by this expert in the law. So he turns the question back around on him and he says, well, what have you read in the law? What does the law say to you about this? And the expert of the law says, well, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this was a very, this was the right answer. This was the, the language that even Jesus himself had used um, in other circumstances when others have tried to test Jesus and asked him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus has said to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus answers the expert in the law. He says, you're right. That's right. Good answer. Now go do this and you will live. I imagine at this point, Jesus uh, turns around to leave. You know, he has answered the expert's question. He sort of dismantled the test and he and his disciples go to leave. But the expert won't let him go. He says, wait, because the expert, Luke tells us, wants to justify himself. He's not happy with the fact that Jesus has been able to turn the question back around on him and make kind of a fool of him. He wants to justify himself. He wants to make himself look good. So he says, wait, wait. Who is my neighbor? It's really important to stop here and recognize the question that precipitates the story of the Good Samaritan, because this is not the question that Jesus is going to end with. In fact, he's going to flip this question around on its head, um, and he's going to turn it around so that um, it goes straight to the heart of the expert and straight to our heart too. But he does start with this question, who is my neighbor? And we can almost hear all the other self-justifying questions behind it. Who should I show love to? Who is worthy of my love? Well, Jesus takes this question and he starts the story of the good Samaritan. So he says it like this. There was a man who was leaving Jerusalem and going down to Jericho. Now, immediately, the expert in the law and the disciples would have 
heard themselves as the man. This is a man coming from Jerusalem. So he's a Jewish man. He's your average upstanding Jewish man. He's going down to, to Jericho. So the disciples and the expert of the law would have identified with him and would have imagined themselves going down the road to Jericho. And as they're on their way to Jericho, Jesus says, robbers come, beat them up, take all their goods, leave them half dead and half naked. And as the disciples are aligning themselves with this man who's half dead in the ditch. Uh, Jesus says, first comes along a priest. So this would have been the religious leader of the day. This would have been the most important person in the Jewish community. And so the disciples and the expert of the law would have heard that and thought, ah, here is my leader. Here's my brother. Here's my kin. Surely he's going to come take care of me. But he doesn't. He doesn't even get close to the man who's half dead in the ditch. He passes him by, he keeps on going, and he leaves him for dead. Strike one. Well, then Jesus says, a temple server comes along, or in some translations it says a Levite. So the Levites were the ones who would have helped out in the temple. They would have helped the priests with the, the rituals and the sacred prayers. And again, the disciples and the expert in the law would have heard that and thought, oh, here's another one of my kin. Here's another one of my brothers. Here's another upstanding Jewish person who's here to serve me in my community. Surely this person is going to come help me out of the ditch. But he doesn't. The Levi at least has the, the, the courtesy to walk over and look at the man who's half dead in the ditch, but then he passes up by to the other side of the road and he keeps on going. Strike two. But then Jesus says, a despised Samaritan comes along. And if we want to understand just how much this point in the parable would have jangled the original listeners, we have to understand the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. It is no exaggeration to say they hated each other. So the Jews saw the Samaritans, it's ugly to say, as half-breeds uh, because they were half-Jewish ethnically and religiously. They didn't follow the same religious law and gods that the Jews did. And in fact, many, for many ways, the Jews, for, for the Jews, the Samaritans would have been even more of an abomination than the Gentiles because they were half-Jewish and they didn't follow the Torah and the law the way that they believed it should be followed. And so they really looked at them as subhuman um, and, and they, they hated them. But there was no love lost on the part of the Samaritans either. The Samaritans equally hated the Jews. And we see this just a few verses before the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, we see this interchange between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And they send a messenger ahead of them into Samaritan village to set up a place to stay and to eat. But when the Samaritans find out that it's Jews coming to town and that they're going on through to Jerusalem, which is a Jewish city, they refuse to help and they kick them out. And the disciples are so furious. James and John, the brothers of thunder, say to Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and curses on those Samaritans? Jesus rebukes them. He says no, and they go on their way to another village. So we see here right before the parable of the Good Samaritan, the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so, man, what would that have sounded like to them when Jesus says that a, a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan comes along and shows them 
the disciples and the expert of the law who would be aligning themselves with the man who's half dead in the ditch, mercy and compassion and grace. This would have been a big pill to swallow, not just because Jesus is saying your, your hated enemy, your hated foreigner is showing you grace and compassion, but he's doing the very thing that's going to lead to eternal life. Because remember, that's what started all this, right? That's what the expert of the law asked. How do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So here Jesus is saying, this person that you think is a half of a person who's a hated foreigner and enemy, not only are they going to be the ones showing you grace and compassion, they're going to get eternal life. They're doing the things to be able to enter into the kingdom. Oh, that would have been hard for these original listeners to hear. It would have been a hard thing to, to digest indeed. So what do we learn then? If we look at this parable and understand it in its original sort of context, what do we learn about the human heart? What is Jesus telling us about our own hearts in this um, and parable. Well, I think the first thing we can take away from clearly is that we as humans love categories. We love to divide. We love to draw lines. We love to say us and them. We love creating categories and then rating them on their value. We love organizing people according to worth. Um, the, one of the great rhetoricians, Kenneth Burke, says that in the very act of languaging, just language itself is the act of naming and categorizing. And as soon as we begin to categorize, overweight, underweight, tall, thin, black, white, settler, indigenous, wealthy, poor, able-bodied, disabled, we immediately as humans begin to associate value with those categories. We almost can't help it. It's, it's in the very DNA of our human condition. The great, the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Friends, it is right in our hearts, this, this desire to evaluate and categorize and, and rate as worthy or unworthy. And this is where we come back to the original question that the expert of the law asked Jesus. And we see that by the end of the parable, Jesus flips that question around. Because what does Jesus say? He, he tells the story of the good Samaritan who comes and helps the man who's in the ditch, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the end, pays for his care and says, I'll come back and I'll pay you whatever you need to, to have this man be taken care of. And then Jesus turns to the expert in the law and he says, which of these three was a neighbor? to the man in the ditch. So remember the first question was, who is my neighbor? It's looking outward. Who is my neighbor? Who is valuable? Who is worthy of my grace and compassion? How do I, give me some, a checklist here. Give me some categories. Give me some, something here to organize the world. And Jesus flips the question back around. He says, dude, wrong question. Who is the one being the neighbor? And the question goes straight into the heart of the expert of the law, straight into our hearts, putting up a magnifying glass on our motives. Why are we show, wanting to show compassion and grace? Well, we may not look at those around us and say, I can't help them because they're my hated enemy. We may not look at our neighbors or those in our community and say, we hate them, and so we're not going to help them. We're good, we're good Canadians after all. Um, but I think we definitely look at others and say, 
well, no, no, I should be helping them. They shouldn't be helping me because I have more resources than them or I have more time or more money or, or better health or, you know, it, we may even, it may even come from a place of perceived um, pity, like, oh, bless their hearts. They've tried so hard, but they just keep making the wrong decisions and it's just, life's been so hard for them and I, I should help them. They shouldn't help me, right? And if we really look at that, there's, there's a sea of pride in that. I, I had to face this in myself this past summer. Uh, we have a neighbor that lives right directly um, to the left of us, and um, she's a single mom of three kids. Her youngest has special needs. As far as we can tell, she doesn't work. She homeschools him. Every now and then she has a car. Some, you know, Maybe she has a car one week but doesn't have it the next week. And as often as I've been able to, you know, we always are cordial, we say hi, we greet each other, and I've tried in the past to offer to, you know, if I'm running to the groceries, hey, can I pick something up for you? She never takes me up on it. Or if I've seen them before the pandemic walking around town trying to run errands, I'll stop and say, hey, do you need a lift? They're never taking me up on it, it's fine. We've always had a very cordial sort of relationship. But this past summer, Dwayne and I were out in our backyard and all of a sudden our our, dear, our sweet neighbor came up to the fence and said, hey, I have something for you. And she dropped an envelope over the side of the fence. And when we opened it up, there was $150 in it. We were stunned. We thought, what in the world? Why is she giving us $150? We don't need this money. Surely she needs this money. She's a single mom. Um, and I, if I'm honest, I found myself a little offended. I thought, you shouldn't be helping me. I should be helping you. I'm the one that is secure and have a, a you know, fully established system, you know, network and, and, and resources. I should be supporting you. You shouldn't be giving me money. Well, I called my friend who's a social worker, and I told her what had happened. I said, what, what do I do with this? Like, should, I, should we take this money? Do we give it back? And she said, why don't you just go talk to your neighbor? She said, why don't you knock on the door and ask her, hey, tell me a little bit more about why you gave us this money. And so I did. I had to put my pride down. I went over, I knocked on the door. I said, thank you so much. Can you just tell me a little more about why you gave us this money? And as she began to share, she shared that they're doing very well in the pandemic. I didn't know that. That they actually had a surplus of money and that her aunt had been telling her she needed to tithe the money, but because they don't go to a church, she didn't have anywhere to tithe it. So she was trying to tithe it to us. There was so much I learned about her in that conversation that I didn't know before. And we actually didn't end up taking the money. We, I, I gave it back and we, we agreed that there was probably a better way to tithe the money than giving it to us and a better way for her to help us if she ever wanted to or needed to. Friends, we have to look at our hearts. We have to look at what motivates us. This question, who was the neighbor, turns the looking glass back on us into our hearts and asks us to consider why we try to help people when we try to help them. What do we learn about the heart of God from this parable? Well, we learn that God is not playing our games. There is no us and them with God. There's no categorizing. There's no rating and worth and value. There's no hierarchy there. Uh, for God, uh, his love breaks through all of those boundaries. <clears throat> Pema Ch uh, Chodron writes that compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion brings, uh, becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. 
I'm going to read that first part again. Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. The root Latin word for compassion is pati and cum, which means to suffer with, to join in with the suffering. Friends, are we equal to God? We certainly are not equal to God. But did God make himself equal to us so that he could show us compassion? He certainly did. In the early days of the church fathers, they would have read the parable of the Good Samaritan as an allegory. So when they read the story of the Good Samaritan, they would have seen the man who was dead in the side of the road as all of humanity, or half dead in the side of the road, as all of humanity, and Jesus as the Good Samaritan coming to bind up the wounds. Jesus, and in the parable says, you know, the Good Samaritan is moved with compassion to come and help the man who's suffering and broken. So Jesus is moved with compassion. He comes to our level. He comes and he suffers with us. God condescended to come meet us on our level. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 6 write, reads, You must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Friends, if God gave up, gave up his power and his place of privilege to come meet us on our level so that he could suffer with us and show us compassion, how much more should we give up any sense of pride or privilege or power that we might conceive we have in giving and receiving compassion? God's compassion and grace dismantles every uh, hierarchy, category, rating system we might have. It levels the playing fields. It destroys the categories. God's compassion and grace abounds and abounds and abounds like a hurricane that sweeps in from the ocean and crashes through all of our man-made structures and divisions. Hurricanes flow through the wealthy part of town as well as they do the poor part of town. God's grace and mercy makes paupers of us all. Because what God knows that we don't know is that none of us is worthy of his compassion and his grace. None of us is worthy. If we think for some reason somehow we have it more together so we um, are worthy of giving grace and compassion and we don't need to accept grace and compassion from, from our neighbors, let alone God, because we, we've got it together, then we are sorely mistaken because what Jesus sees and knows is that all of us are spiritually the man who's half beaten and dead on the side of the road. We are all, none of us is worthy of grace and compassion, and therefore all of us are eligible for God's grace and compassion. So what do I want us to do with this insight? We understand what this parable reveals about our heart, that written into the DNA of our hearts, there is a part of us that wants to categorize and evaluate and assess and then portion out grace and compassion or receive grace and compassion based on how we assess and evaluate our needs and other people's needs, our worth and our value and other people's worth and value. We also learn about the heart of God, that he isn't playing those games. He crashes through all of that. 
and he comes down to our level. He gave up the ultimate power and privilege to meet us where we are. And if he is willing to do that, we, how much more should we humble ourselves so that we can receive grace and compassion and also give grace and compassion from a place of humility? So how do we do that? How do we show compassion? Well, we have to approach each other as equals. I'm not helping you because I'm any better than you. And I have to be willing just as quickly to receive help from you because you're not any lower than me. God got rid of those barriers. He shows compassion freely, but we also, but also we have to be willing to receive compassion freely. It goes both ways. I see it as compassion, not as a waterfall, but as a saloon door. So if we think of a waterfall, it's usually coming from a bigger reserve up top and it's portioning out the water into to lower uh, rivers and eddies and, and lakes. And sometimes we can approach compassion and grace this way, that we have all these resources to give compassion and grace and portion it out as we see fit. But in reality, compassion is a saloon door. If you think about those old westerns when the cowboys would come into the saloon and the doors would be on double hinges and they swing backwards and forwards equally, compassion goes out as equally as compassion is received and brought in. How do we do this? How do we start to see ourselves rightly, put aside our pride and self-sufficiency and get in touch with our need for God's grace and compassion through Christ? Well, it starts with a prayer. It starts with a simple prayer that helps us rightly remember who we are, that really down at the very heart of things, we need God more than we need anything else in this world. It can be hard to pray this prayer because of our comfort, because of our privilege, because of our education, and yet it is still true. Abba, I need you. I encourage you to pray this prayer this week when you wake up in the morning as you go through the day. Abba is, of course, the Hebrew word for daddy. It's an incredibly intimate word uh, for our creator. But start the day with Abba, I need you. As you go through the day, Abba, I need you today. I need you in this moment. I need you, I need you, I need you. And as we pray this prayer, it begins to shape our hearts. It begins to bring us into right alignment with who we are and who God is. And if we understand the depths of our need, if we understand the depths of our need for God's grace and compassion in our lives, then we are better able to then offer and pass on that grace and compassion, not because we think we have it together, we think we've done anything that means we're worthy of offering it, but because we're just channeling it right on through from our Heavenly Father to our neighbors. After our prayer time today, um, we're going to break out into our neighbors groups to continue to talk about this idea of giving and receiving compassion from a place of humility. And I want you to pay attention to the beautiful prayer that our, our staff has put together for us this week, the Lenten prayer. Um, and it comes along with a little bandage. So you can do a prayer walk. You can hold on to it um, as you go through the week or just put the bandage in the, the prayer card somewhere where you can see it. But the prayer says, may my value for this world and the people in it extend far beyond the uses I have for them. Amen. This is a great prayer that brings us back to that place of humility as we approach those who are in need around us and as we recognize our own needs this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful that you condescended to come meet us on our level, 
that you gave up heaven to come and take on our suffering and our pain and our sin so that you could suffer with us, that you could offer us empathy and compassion and meet us in grace. Jesus, we invite you in, your spirit into our hearts to root out the seed of pride, the pride that says that we are worthy of helping others because we've made right decisions because we've done things better than others, because we have more resource than others, because we're better situated than others. Lord, root that out. None of that is rooted in the spiritual reality of who we are and our need for you. I pray, Jesus, that you would come and open our hearts, that we would let go of that so that we can see our neighbors as you see them, love them as you love them and as we love ourselves and to offer and to be able to receive uh, the grace and compassion we so desperately need, not just from those who are closest to us, but from you, uh, Jesus. We thank you so much. In your name, amen.